Welcome to the podcast. I'm Carrie Compton. Today, I'm speaking with Jennifer Howard from the class of 1985. Howard has just released a book called Clutter, An Untidy History. Faced with the daunting task of cleaning out her elderly mother's chaotic and jam-packed home, Howard began to ask herself, why is this scenario so common and what drives our need to acquire and accumulate so many things? And what becomes of our belongings when we, or often our loved ones, finally dispose of them? Howard is a former contributing editor at the Washington Post and a former senior reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education, whose writing has also appeared in Slate and Humanities Magazine. She spoke to us from her Washington, D.C. home. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jennifer. Um, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me on the podcast, or the podcast. (laughs) Let's begin our conversation with your mother's home, which you were tasked to clean out. Talk about what you went through in that process. Well, in retrospect, I probably should have seen it coming given, you know, that we live in the same town and I did make a number of visits there, but I didn't realize how much was accumulating over years and decades and that that this Mm. was a problem that was, you know, decades in the making, really. When I was a child, my mother was not um, the neatest person in the world, but I would not have said she had hoarding disorder. You know, there were stacks of papers and things, um, but nothing really awful. What I found, though, when so she um, she had been declining for a while. We realized afterwards she was slipping into to dementia, and we hadn't mm. really picked up on that as we probably should have. We noticed, though, that she, there were stacks of papers and mail, and then more alarmingly, things like dirty laundry would just pile up at the foot of the basement stairs, and she started living on takeout food, so uh, she would get more and more you know, containers of takeout and then not throw them away. Um, so... Right. And I would go over and kind of try to throw things out, but she had a crisis almost overnight. Um, she mm. wasn't answering her phone. We we decided we had to drive over and have an intervention and say, "You can't live this way anymore. It's not safe." Uh, we found her basically comatose. Um, she was taken to the hospital. Never came home. So suddenly, mm. I had this enormous house. Well, it's not an it's not an enormous house, but the amount of stuff in it was overwhelming. I mean, no room was passable, you know, just the stacks of every kind of random thing, um, the food containers, as I've mentioned, clothes, canning jars, you know, every kind of object, kitchenware, books, uh, just random and jumbled and stacked so you couldn't have, you really could not just cross through a room without encountering, you know, how to get over or around something. Um, mm. And it was just, it was staggering to me, really, really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So was it during this process that you decided to write this book, or was our aptitude for clutter always something that interested you? Well, I realize I've, I've always been interested in it, not really so much as a subject, but as a problem. Just how one deals with the amount of stuff that you accumulate has always been interesting to me. I have two kids, and when I became a parent, of course, kids seem to attract clutter and stuff of all kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, Family life is messy, but individual life is messy too. So cl- clutter was something that I lived with and and sort of fought against a lot of a lot of my life. But it wasn't until I really was confronted with the enormous task of of my mother's house and and dealing with that that I really started to wonder how how it got so bad. You know, it had mm-hmm. just been a personal problem for me. But then when when I saw what had happened to her, 
and started talking to people um, and hearing similar stories, I thought, this is really a collective problem and I need to understand mm-hmm. this better. So that's mm-hmm. when, it, when it became, it, it became a book idea, but also a lifeline, honestly, when mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out my way out through and out of this mess. Um, I have no siblings, so it, it all fell on me. My husband was great, uh, but he couldn't make the kinds of decisions, the emotional decisions one has to make with sure. a family house. So I would go over at night, you know, on, on weeknights and during the weekend, I would go over and just try to, you know, pick a stack of something to sort through or pick a room. Um, so I was, I was um, sort of doing all that and my day job and the family, and then started starting to kind of read, uh, read about clutter and try to. I wasn't actively writing the book at that point, but I realized I was mm. starting to pull together material research mm-hmm. for what became the book. Yeah. Your first chapter is an examination of hoarding disorder. Talk about what you learned in the process of researching that. Um, to me, it was fascinating. I'm not a psychiatrist or a social worker, so but I did interview several and read a lot in the current literature. I had always, and I saw this very much in my mother's case, um, that there's so, such deep shame attached to extreme clutter, whether it's actually hoarding disorder related or not. Um, but, you know, we're all supposed to be able to control our, our physical belongings and have a neat house. You know, think how many times you go to somebody's house and the first thing they do is apologize for the mess. So there's this easily accessed shame, even for people who don't have hoarding disorder. Um, but with people who do, you know, they, they have such a complicated set of relationships to their things and they're existing in a world that is telling them that, that they're, this is shameful and dirty and awful. Um, it's a very complicated set of problems, and it's only been really recently recognized as a separate disorder. For a long time, hoarding disorder was considered um, part of this constellation of uh, OCD. But I think because it was sort of bundled up in all this cultural shame and opprobrium and then treated as something else, like, well, you're just anxious and you just, or you have a, you know, it's your fault somehow that you have mm-hmm. all this stuff. Um, it, it really uh, became very difficult for people to seek help, and it's only in recent years that the medical profession has really has addressed this and started to understand it and study it in a more sympathetic and humane way. So um, what most fascinated me, I think, was, well, understanding the deep shame attached to it, and you see in a popular culture there are a lot of reality TV shows and things that will shame, that sort of go out of their way to, I think, shame people who suffer from this. Um, but when you start to talk to somebody or read interviews with people who suffer from hoarding disorder, their relationship to their things is fascinating. Um, you know, these are collections sometimes to them, or it's uh, like an enormous security blanket. Um, the terms that they sometimes use for themselves, you know, finder keepers or collectors, or, it's really interesting. And hoarding disorder really has to be handled very sensitively and in a really individual way because it can be so, it's so personal for people. So you chart this thirst for knickknacks back to the well-populated mantelpieces of the Victorian age. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about how that led us to the era that we're in today. (laughs) I'll probably get some heat from Victorianists for blaming the Victorians. (laughs) Everything comes comes down on them these days it feels that's like right. that's right um and I, I will say there you know there's a rich and vast body of scholarship on material culture not just the victorians but and not just western um anglo-american or northern european and american 
Um, but for me, once I read through a lot of the stuff on hoarding disorder, and then I started looking, I, I was hoping I could find an origin point in history for clutter. I never found the year or the decade uh, where mm-hmm. we could say, this is where clutter begins. The, the word dates to the Middle Ages, and it's related to, to clod, like clumps of things. You can sort of start mm. to sense that, which is what clutter often is. It's you know, this sort of mass of stuff. So many things sort of came together in that era that resonated for me as I was dealing with my mother's situation and then looking at the kind of culture of consumption in which she and we are embedded. So in the Victorian era, you have all, a lot of resources and, uh, um, of, of empire being extracted and brought back, you know, brought back to the home country, the imperial center. You've got the rise of great cities um, where there, there's a mass of people who need and want goods and, and services. Um, you have uh, in the rise of industry where people are learning to you know, manufacture more things and so there's a greater volume of stuff. You have this cult of domesticity um, and that, that if you were a certain, you know, you were supposed to aspire to a well-appointed bourgeois home. Mm. Um, you had, uh, not, obviously not everybody was bourgeois, a lot of people couldn't afford the things that, that they were taught to aspire to, but all of these pressures and opportunities and consumptive habits um, started, to, in my reading anyway, start to coalesce in that and really kind of come to, to flower in that era. Um, I was fascinated by the Crystal Palace, you know, the, um, with the great exhibition in the, in the middle, middle part of the century, and that just as a showcase for every kind of good you could possibly imagine, um, mm. like the world's department store almost. Mm-hmm. So and just put it that it was so fascinating to people to have all these this abundance of material culture, um, and then the emphasis on keeping a nice home, you know, having it well furnished, having it under control. So all these things I, I really felt very resonant of when I looked at the aspirations my mother had, for example, and the things that she you know the the thing she was trying to accomplish with stuff, and then how it got mm. got out of her control. It seemed very Victorian in some ways to me, and I could feel sort of the echoes coming down the the last hundred hundred and fifty years. Mm. Let's come back to today and our seemingly voracious habits as consumers. Mm. You point out how we're almost trained from our earliest years to form intense emotional connections to things. Mm such as our first teddy bears. Right. Uh, talk about what you discovered um, about our landscape of consumer culture. Boy, there's so much to, to unpack there, you know, and I, I, say that yeah. with, I say that intentionally. I certainly noticed um, when my own kids were born, of course, the ritual of the baby shower is lovely, and often you're given things that you mm-hmm. need as a new parent. You need diapers, or you need, you know, some clothing and whatnot. Um, really, from the get-go, there are more toys than any child could could use. Um, parent, par- parents and grandparents love to express their love for the child by buying a new toy, a book, a mm-hmm. cl- you know, clothing, um, all this paraphernalia that babies really just don't need, right? <laughs> right. Um, I mean, they, they do, you know, they do form bonds. We, we all form bonds. We probably have a favorite teddy bear. My daughter has a stuffed platypus named Penelope that she has had since she was two weeks old. So there are, you know, totemistic objects that are very meaningful. Um, but we have in our basement alone, you know, there are two or three trash bags full of stuffed animals that were given to us or we picked up at yard sales or, and I'm staggered, it's hundreds of animals for two children in a middle class family. Mm-hmm. Um, it's crazy, you know, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know how it happened. I deeply regret it now. Um, Legos, my son went through a Lego phase. 
hundreds and hundreds of Legos. Uh, and once you got to the, once he became interested in building Lego sets, you know, it's not like you right. build the Millennium Falcon and then disassemble it and build it all over again. You know, it's a kind of a one-off thing. Um, yeah. So we live in this culture and you introduce what you call the minimalist gurus mm. whose work is to sort of gently coax us rabid consumers into a new decluttered life. Mm-hmm. So Marie Kondo, how has she influenced the national mindset regarding stuff? Oh, she's a, uh, in my reading anyway, she's really been the dominant voice in this conversation for the last five, five or six years. She came to my attention when I was actually cleaning out my mother's house. You know, her, the life-changing magic, magic of tidying up had just recently come out, it was a huge bestseller. I picked it up thinking, not really thinking it would actually help me um, because what we, you know, things were too far on basically for that. But, um, but I thought, well, it'll be a divert, you know, diversion and maybe she'll make me feel better about this clutter problem. Um, I think what she did was, I mean, part, part of it was the novelty of like, oh, I mean, I have to thank my socks for their service before I toss <laughs> them. You know, well, that's sort of, uh, I mean, if you, if you grow up in this culture, that's not really sort of the traditional way we've, it, this culture has handled uh, deaccessioning things. Um, so it was sort of novel and fun and interesting. Um, but I think what essentially that, that sort of approach does is to invite you to really look at your stuff again rather than just letting it churn throughout the house and pile up mm. and have to be stored and bagged and run up, you know, taken to goodwill. And um, it really says, okay, well, what, what things do you have and what do they mean to you? I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. the sort of at the heart of the questions that she's asking and the method that I think she's um, bringing to this. And that's really, that is kind of startling and arresting for a culture, at least it was for me in this culture, where stuff was basically something to be acquired and then managed, rather than Mm -hmm. something that was sort of working with you necessarily as a harmonious um, Mm -hmm. part of a a happy life. And I think what she also does is, is bring a certain kindness to the process of decluttering that has been missing. Going back to the shame we were talking about before, and the, the, you know, the people who have extreme clutter are held up you know, there's the subject of local news stories, you know, hoarder dies in fire, and then there's some blurred account of all the stuff in the mm-hmm. house. Um, or these reality TV shows where these poor people are dragged in front of cameras and have to listen to their friends and relatives say, you know, this is disgusting, how could you do right. this? But she's, um, she's so kind, she doesn't seem phased or judgmental. I then watched her Netflix show, uh, and that that was, it was such a such a departure again from what we had generally been um, taught to think about clutter. But she's very, yeah. she's so calm about it and friendly, and 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 sort of like, okay, well, let's look at this stuff, and we can do this, and it's good. Um, so I think that she's offered something to twenty um, first century American culture that we didn't really have so much. Oh, and I, th- I think um, she's sometimes conflated with with the minimalist uh, guru tradition. Uh, she's not really a minimalist. You know, she's not telling you to get rid of. That. I think that's that's something of a. Sometimes she gets um, accused of that, but she's really not. She's not t- telling you you need to get rid of everything, but just that you mm. need to live more intentionally. You know, she's offering up the opportunity to live a. A better life. We didn't really talk about the Victorian tradition of um, female advice givers, which she's she uh, all the the new the new uh, condo and the minimalists are also. I, that's an old tradition too. That idea of you know, women sort of writing these advice manuals and domestic manuals, and I think that you see that in personal organizers too, who are still mostly female. Um, mm-hmm. 
and that there's a tradition of women kind of turning this traditional set of uh, domestic skills and pressures into something that actually makes them some money and gives them a, um, a platform, which I think is a fascinating, there's a lot of gender, a gender yeah. stuff tied up in clutter that, that is worth thinking about. You also mentioned, too, that it falls often to women much in the way of the, the second shift idea, that women yeah. have to not only at this point earn a living, but come home and do all of the unpaid parts of maintaining their best life. Right, right. I think that's um, that's certainly been true in many of the families I've seen. Um, now, as families you know, change, um, not everybody's in, in a mom and dad kind of arrangement, and... Uh, mm -hmm. But I'm, but I'm. I think the pandemic is actually a great opportunity for people to really look at their domestic arrangements. We kind of all have to because they're in our faces all the time, and to see where the balance falls and who really does what and who, who cares? Does somebody really care about clutter? Can you live with more of it, less of it? Who's who's, um, whose responsibility is it assumed to be? Mm -hmm. I think these are all very good questions for people to be asking themselves as they, see, you know how their yeah. household routines really unfold and I hope on the other end of this maybe we'll come up with some some more egalitarian arrangements or at least a sense of, of an appreciation for the labor that does go into maintaining stuff right you've also mentioned the gentle art of Swedish death cleaning mm, mm -hmm. I thought that sounded so interesting talk about <laughs> that book it's a it's a fun little book the woman who wrote it is Swedish as you might guess but she's at the stage in life where she was deaccessioning, downsizing, getting ready to sort of think about what stuff might be passed on to children and all. Mm. And she's really, you know, she's the antithesis of my mother, unfortunately, who, my mother who just avoided, you know, making any decisions about any of her stuff. And this woman really rolls up her sleeves and says, okay, well, you know, this can be fun, you, but you're going to have to deal with it. Don't make your children do it. Don't make your heirs do it. That's mean. You know, <laughs> let's just get done. Right. You know, and it's a very, it's a very, um, quick read a nice a nice read but it has something serious to say as well uh, it's, and it could be a nice role model for people who want to be encouraged to go through their stuff and not not um, pass it down to their heirs you know unedited right. Yeah. right and you you said that about your own mother's house that you weren't really able to celebrate anything bequeathed to you because everything right was right. handed to you as a chore instead yeah, it was really, I realized, uh, I mean, I was so focused on the grim task at hand that I didn't fully process that component of it until afterward. But um, I was uh, realizing, you know, I came across all kinds of things in the attic, in the basement, in file folders, you know, letters from people, photographs of people who might or might not be relations. I, I have no idea that mm. the photos aren't labeled. I don't recognize the people. And my mother um, is still alive, but with dementia, she has no idea, um, and she was not able to sit there with me and go through everything and say, oh, this reminds me of the time when, you know, I was in um, California and I stopped at this, you know, roadside restaurant and here's the book of matches from it, or whatever it is. But sometimes it's the small objects that, um, that end up holding very specific, interesting memories. But unless, you know, unless you've written those stories down or you pass them on by telling them as you're going through your stuff, those stories are just gone, you know, and I had to make guesses in the dark basically about what was meaningful and what what I should try to save or rehome and some of it came down to just having to to look at whether an object was useful not whether it was sentimentally mm -hmm. important but mm -hmm. here's something that still might be useful to somebody so I I will save this and pass it on you know um, sure. 
but I really do feel like it's a shame to have uh, such a large chunk of somebody's life and memories vanish. Mm -hmm. So where do our belongings go? What did you discover about their afterlife? Boy, um, that was really eye-opening to me. For a long time, I've been concerned about where our waste goes, because I see how much, you know, I look at the cans out back in my, my alley in the city, you know, D.C. here, and there's a lot of stuff that goes out every week that's going to a mm -hmm. landfill. Um, recycling is lovely and great. I'm glad we are in the habit of doing that, but the recycling system is not working particularly well. Um, when I started reading about where our recycling goes and how it gets, you know, was getting loaded onto container ships going to China and places like that, and started thinking about this global system of stuff and where it, this churn and where it all goes. Um, every time I would take a Goodwill, uh, take a load of mom stuff out to Goodwill and look at the mounds and mounds and mounds of, right. I mean, it looks like a landfill, you know, nothing against Goodwill. I think that, I think they're great, but um, mm -hmm. just this mountain of, of unsorted stuff. And then somebody has to ship that somewhere and sort it. And it's like, oh my God, how did we get, you know, the volume again it was like my mother's house writ large when I look at, at the planet and the waste systems we have I started looking at, at uh, reading about scavengers and recycling and the secondhand trade there's a journalist named Adam Minter who who's a Bloomberg journalist um, he comes from a family of uh, of junkyard owners in Minneapolis so he's got this I think three or four generations of, of salvagers basically in the family and he, he's very interested in this global waste and recycling um, highly recommend his book Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale, and he goes all over the world looking at, among other things, where the stuff we discard goes. Um, it is, it's fascinating. I assumed a lot of it just got landfilled, which it does. He goes to Africa and he talks to people in different um, in countries in Africa who have these workshops where they'll take discarded computer monitors or whatever it is and just rebuild them or, or take the parts out, and um, it's fascinating. So, you know, it's so intrepid and it had a sort of Victorian overtones where in the Victorian era you'd get these people um, the street sellers who would come through and buy your your used stuff and repurpose it you know buy rags to sell to paper mills or whatever and they would also then sell you stuff you needed and so the that impulse is still there it's just harder to find in in contemporary America at least it's not you know in the the parts that we see mm -hmm. um, but I started to see everything I dealt with in my mother's house as some larger counterpart in in you know the society or in this this global exchange of goods and where stuff goes and the imbalances of too much consumption and then too much discarding and um, maybe some missed opportunities to, to to salvage and reuse things there also is are some interesting economies and livelihoods created around that and maybe some lessons that um, developed countries could learn from from countries that are looking at our at discards as a resource rather than as trash mm. so it's it's an endless and complicated set of exchanges uh, but I think mm -hmm. it's really important for, for us to as we consume think about where it's all going you made some really responsible and it seemed um, really resourceful choices about where some of your mother's belongings wound up talk about that a little bit that was um, I, I, won't, I hesitate to say that that was a fun part of the process, but I enjoyed sure. the creative challenge of identifying things that might be useful and then finding new homes for them. Yeah. It is hard to give things away. Um, books can be very hard to give away. Public libraries can only take but so many for their, you know, their book sales. Um, Goodwill is overwhelmed with books. 
But uh, some things like um, my mother was a trained classical keyboardist. She had a harpsichord. The the, the used harp, you know, the used piano market is hit, the bottom's really fallen out right. of that. Harpsichords right. are m- more rare, but they're still not they're not that easy to find homes for. But I found a um, woman who's a um, was uh, studying uh, keyboards in, in the Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore. And she needed a practice instrument, so I loaned it to her, basically, as long as she wants it, she can have it. And so she, it's being used. You know, Mom hadn't played it in 15 years. But it took a lot of wrangling to, to make that arrangement, but it made me feel happy because um, because it's being played again, and it's serving its purpose in the world, and it's helping out somebody who's a rising you know, performer. Mom had a lot of musical scores, so I found... Um, another musician friend of of hers who would use them for his students that Mm -hmm. was a good outcome I sent boxes and boxes of things to family members I did uh, I put some things just out on the curb I found a charity that that uh, helps people who are coming out of homelessness and setting up apartments uh boy what else did I do oh I took uh, office supplies she had a lot of she had a home office um she worked from home toward in her later years and just got, I, I mean, uh, the catalog of stuff, it was crazy. Um, I, I did a voice memo on my phone just describing all the things I found, and it was insane. I think she would mm-hmm. just go to Staples and buy, you know, buy, like, multiple boxes of things. But it turned out the animal shelter can always use office supplies. So okay. I drove a car full of office supplies there, like, okay, well, this helps the animals, and, she, you know. Um, but all those decisions take so much time and effort. A couple of people said to me, why don't you just get a dumpster and put it all in the dumpster? But I just couldn't. The volume was awful. Uh, it was just seemed like it seemed ecologically criminal to do that. And I thought, well, even though she can't, mom can't tell me what these things are, you know, pull out the meaningful things, I can create some sort of meaning for them by giving them mm-hmm. to people who might need them. So, okay. and it's, that was one reason that the clean out took so long because I had to sort of each category of thing required a set of emails, phone calls, trips, you know, whatever Absolutely. it was. Absolutely. A lot yeah. of consideration. Yeah. Yeah. I was really impressed with that. Well, thank you. It was, it was a way to get, to pull something good out of something very bad. After all of your research and your consideration, what is your top line advice about clutter and belongings that you can share with anybody listening to this? Boy, um, don't let it get as bad as my mother did. You know, <laughs> act, no, seriously, act act sooner rather than later. To live intentionally with with things is, I think, the goal, rather than having them be the overwhelming, driving factor of your life. Um, you know, finding some sort of balance in the here and now, remembering that the people, uh, people and stories are the most important things, not the stuff. Mm-hmm. Even even if you have antiques and things, that that's lovely, and they're they're certainly very. The objects can be lovely and and useful, um, but the stuff shouldn't get in get in the way of relationships of living, living your life here and now. Um, it should not come at a great cost to the environment, which I think it often does for us. Uh, and also, don't don't put things off. Don't assume you'll have time when you're eighty to go through everything because you might not. Mm. Um, and you know, try to enjoy your things and the people in your life rather than letting them become this um, albatross and this, you know, black hole of stuff. So, Thank you so much. Very well put. Thanks for joining me today, Jennifer. A pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for listening to this month's podcast. If you'd like to hear other episodes, please go to paw.princeton.edu or subscribe on Apple iTunes. Till next time.